In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to read you the, the text upon which the sermon is based first off. It's from Philippians 1 and 1 Corinthians 13. I wonder if you might stand for this very brief text. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If I have not welcomed you, those at home, I welcome you now. I'm glad you're with us, whether now or later. During Lent, as you've heard, we've been trying to humble ourselves by going through what, I don't know what else you could term it as a remedial class in love, as recovering what is so central to our identity, but which circumstances and perhaps all the more in the last 12 months have been most out to threaten within us. And I will say here on the front end of preaching this passage that of everything that Paul has said so far and where he will conclude next week, I think this will be the hardest text to hear. Because this passage is talking about something that's more than just what you do or do not do. This passage has everything to do with the inner disposition of your heart. And that is not something that you can just sort of snap your fingers and snap into. And therefore, it provides for us the highest bar, the greatest ask. And if that is true of what love calls from us in the Lord, then this is what requires the most intervention from God for it to ever be true in us. This is more than just an action. This is a disposition. And therefore, this is talking about the condition of our heart. And our hearts, brothers and sisters, are deep waters. But to, to, if you will, push off from the dock to kind of figure out what are these deep waters and what is the nature of this love, I want to bring up a storyline that perhaps many of you are familiar with. Raise your hand, including you at home, if you ever saw the film, What About Bob? Yeah, um, among the many films that we quote, uh, next only to Raising Arizona, is What About Bob? We quote that pretty often. We find its explanation or its storyline relevant to all sorts of things. If you don't know that story, it's about a guy named Bob, imagine that, who suffers from any number of really strong neuroses. And that probably biggest on the top of his afflictions is a problem with boundaries. <laughs> but he meets a brilliant, published, but self-absorbed psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Leo Marvin. And Dr. Marvin sits with Bob for one session and then says, I'm about to go off on vacation at summer break at our summer house at Lake Winnipesaukee, although he doesn't tell him where it is. And so Dr. Leo and his family head off for the summer at that place. But Bob, in his desperation to consider, continue his therapy, finds out where the family goes and goes to Lake Winnipesaukee himself to continue the treatment. I told you he had a problem with boundaries. And that's part of the tension of the whole film. But if you saw that film, there's a bit part played by an 
a retired couple by the name of the Gutmans. Remember, remind your, raise your hand if you remember the Gutmans. Yeah, right. So they're a retired family or couple. They live at Wake Pen- Lake Winnipesaukee, and they have spent years saving their money that they might buy this lovely cottage right on the lake. And just as they're primed and ready to buy that house, Dr. Marvin swoops in with his lawyers and purchases that house right out from under the Gutmans. Well, you can imagine how they might respond. With great revulsion, there is no love lost between him and them. By the end of the film, which I probably won't try to spoil for you, Dr. Leo and Bob have pretty much changed positions. Now Bob is asking, acting like the sane one, and Dr. Leo has gone off the rails. And through a remarkable turn of events, the house that Dr. Leo and his family have enjoyed for so many years explodes and starts being burned to the ground. And in that moment, in a canoe, just off the shore of Lake Winnipesaukee, next to the house that's burning to the ground, are who else? The Gutmans. And as they watch that thing burn, what do they do? They yell, burn! Burn! And we all laugh. I laugh too. They are not just observing what's happening, they're reveling in it. And when we watch that film, we don't just view the film, we're, we're triumphing with them in solidarity for this disrespected, disregarded couple. There's a word for what the Gutmans are doing in that moment and to which all of us are laughing. It's a German word. It's not a word that any of us use very often. I don't use it at all. It's the German word, Schadenfreude. Before the service, Gina wondered if that was anything like a snickerdoodle. And I said, no, unless some enemy of yours drops their snickerdoodles on the floor, and then you're tempted to Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is literally translated as joy in harm. It's not about seeking a certain outcome, but it is about how you feel when a certain outcome emerges. It is loving the fact that those who have done wrong, whether to you or to someone else, has fallen. And you delight in that. Joy in harm is what we call schadenfreude. And you know what? It feels really natural. It feels very right. Why else would we be laughing when the Gutmans yell, burn, burn. But when you think about that, it feels so natural and it feels so right that we either laugh about it or engage in it that we shouldn't be surprised that it's pretty much everywhere. Uh, baseball season starts on Thursday. Aren't we, don't we give God thanks, right? But, but Schadenfreude finds its way even into baseball etiquette. You know, etiquette, the, 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 the things that are not in the rule book but really are, an umpire will never dust off home plate with his backside turned to the crowd. It's always to the field. If you're up by 10 runs, etiquette says you don't steal bases. But where Schadenfreude shows up in baseball is 
If you hit a homer off a pitcher, you don't flip the bat toward the pitcher mound. Because if you do, that pitcher's bench will clear. Because what you've just engaged in is joy in their downfall. That's schadenfreude, and it shows up in sport. It also shows up, I don't want to shock you, it also shows up in politics. You think, right? Two, two policy decisions, two policy possibilities happen. One prevails. You know what those whose policy position prevails, right? They're not just glad that they've enacted their will. They're delighted in the fact that they've beaten their adversary. And of course, we all know that the most prevalent place in which Freud is at work is on social media. We don't want to just call out each other's errors. We want to punish them. We want to banish them. And the reason they call it a pile-on is because there's this delicious feeling with knowing that someone that you deeply disagree with has been shown to be a fool. Friends, that's schadenfreude. And the reason it is so prevalent across every domain of humanity is because, how do I put it? The inclination to it comes standard with every human. You don't have to be taught to do it. When you're a kid, even an infant, and a nearby infant either takes your cupcake or smacks you on the face, you know what you want to do? You want to smack them back. Even before they have words, children in that moment of being harmed will say to themselves in gibberish, I don't like that you did that. I don't want you to do that. I'm going to return the favor. Ha, huh, I bet you don't like that either, do you? Before you have words, not only are you trying to defend yourself, you derive a little satisfaction in knowing that they're hurting. Uh, kids with siblings, uh, I won't ask for names. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But there may have been at least one moment in your life in which a sibling, a brother or sister, whatever, has done wrong, and you let mom and dad know that they have done wrong, and they ones, they get busted. And what do you say? Boy, I hope they will learn their lesson. No! You go, ha ha, busted. Enjoy that walk of sh It's Schadenfreude. And the thing is, even as we get older, that very self-focused response, there can be sort of this moral grid that you, you are introduced to. Somebody says, you know what? Even when violence is done to you, you probably shouldn't return violence in return. It'll only escalate. It'll get worse. And you don't want what's on the other side of that. And, and even in that moment, what is that out to say? It's a very self-focused form of morality. Don't escalate or it'll get worse. Friends, what we're hearing in verse 6, finally, the text, right? When he says, do not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. He's really kind of elaborating on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, turn the other cheek. He's, he's doing a, a double take. 
trying to figure out what is the nature of love in this sense. And, and when you and I read verse 6, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You know, I, I sat with this text, and it took me probably five or six times to go, what, what is he saying? Uh, not to make fun of John Calvin, but in his lengthy exposition on this passage, he entirely skips verse 6. It's like verse 6 doesn't even exist for him. He goes straight from verse 5 into verse 7. Woohoo, nothing to see here. Why? Because on its face, you go, what is Paul talking about? Uh, it's like, coming in verse 6 is like walking towards a building in the fog. At first, you can only make out maybe its broad outlines. You can't see thing, anything specific to it. And, and as we get closer to it, we, we realize that Paul is at least making a contrast. There is something we should not rejoice in and something that we should rejoice in. But what is it that we're supposed to not rejoice in and to rejoice in instead? See, what he's talking about here is not just a behavior. It's talking about a disposition of the heart. Because you can't, you can't command somebody to rejoice in something. It has to be of their own free will. It has to be of the nature of their heart. What is it then that we're not supposed to have joy in? Yours and others' downfall. Even if they've done wrong. And that's why with a little bit of help from commentators on a passage like this, I think what Paul is out to tell us this, is that love lives beyond Schadenfreude. Where love really is in place, it has, it has moved, it has found a way to move past simply or merely wanting to harm someone or punish someone who has acted wrongly. It is actually trying to move past that towards something even more wonderful. And so what verse 6 is imagining is something beyond just not retaliating for harm done. It is actually turning that passage into us not delighting in that downfall. Because when you reach that point, you realize their downfall adds nothing to you. Is You get nothing from it to see them merely get their just desserts, as we might call them. Paul, you might say, is riffing on, on an echo of what we hear in the Proverbs. In Proverbs 24, it says this, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. It's one of the more bizarre Proverbs in all of the Proverbs. He's saying, don't rejoice in their downfall because who does God take pity on? Those who become the object of derision. Those who become the object of hatred. Those who become the object of schadenfreude. But what Paul does here is he's, it's got the same idea, but he's, he's taking it further. He's taking it further, not only what we not to do, but what to do instead. I promise I'm going to illustrate this in due time. Let me just get it to this point, and then we'll, we'll unpack it for what I mean by that. Look, it's not only realizing that there is no gift to see somebody's downfall, but there is actually a real gift to you 
in the midst of somebody having acted wrongly, whether toward you or to somebody else. And what gets lost in the translation in the English is something that we have to recover because on the back half of verse 6, when it says, but rejoices with the truth, the word there for rejoices with is the idea that you are rejoicing with someone in whom truth has finally taken hold of them. In which something has even greater than them realizing that they've done wrong or that they've experienced the consequences of having done wrong. What is a greater gift than their downfall is their repentance. Is that truth has finally caught up with them. That reality has finally come over them. And love, that's way beyond schadenfreude. As natural as it feels to see somebody get what we think is the just desserts they deserve, love longs for something more. So to distill all of that language down into two sentences, I don't usually quote commentators because they're always so technical, but Anthony Fistleton, I think, gets it straight on when he says this. Love takes no pleasure in someone else's failure and delights in integrity and reality. If the situation is bad, love wants to help. If the situation is good, love wants to celebrate. What? Let me unpack that for us. Let me show you some ways in which it applies in three different ways. This, this very self-forgetful, other-centered understanding in the midst in which harm and injustice has been done. I'm going to give you three pictures of it. One from literature, one from history, and one from very real life. In literature, J.K. Rowling wrote the Harry Potter series, and in an interview she said that the whole storyline could be boiled down to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. She was very explicit about that. And at the very end of the storyline, Harry Potter is in a pitched battle with his greatest nemesis, Voldemort. And in that moment, between them, it's, it's something more than just good versus evil. Voldemort has killed Harry's parents. Voldemort has terrorized everyone in the land. Voldemort has sought Harry's death from the moment Voldemort learned that Harry was still alive. And here in the climactic battle, there in a pitched battle, but the battle is something more than just good out to destroy evil. Harry Potter has had a prophetic glimpse of what will befall Voldemort if he continues on this self-centered, maniacal quest for power. And there, as they are dueling to the death, Harry Potter cries out to Voldemort and he says this to him. It's your last chance. It's all you've got left. I've seen what you'll be otherwise. Be a man. Try. Try for some remorse. In a moment where you and I, which the films totally obscure, where we just expect Harry to want to eradicate and put this evil force 
down and away forever. Instead, in that last moment, do you know what he is offering Voldemort? The chance to repent. To ask him to actually have some remorse for all that he has done. And by that remorse, change his way. That kind of heart reflects the very kind of love that we're hearing about in verse 6. Where Harry is not simply seeking an end in which he might rejoice in Voldemort's downfall. He's actually hoping that Voldemort might come to an understanding of the truth and have remorse over that truth. Such that Harry is in that moment prepared, prepared to rejoice if Voldemort repents. He doesn't. It ends. But in that moment, you see that illustration of this text as most vibrantly and explicitly expressed as you could imagine in literature. That's literature. What about history? About 250 miles from here, in April of 1865, at Appomattox Courthouse, General Lee signs the surrender to the Union troops before Ulysses S. Grant. And when Grant steps outside, what do his Union soldiers do? They hoop, they holler, they dance, they delight. They've won. They've beaten their adversary, their nemesis. And what does Grant do? He tells them to stop. He tells them to be quiet. And he explains to them that though, though the South had sought to fight for an institution as abhorrent as any one might imagine, on this day, they were still their countrymen. They might delight in the fact that the war is over and a certain truth has prevailed, but on this day they would not dance in delight over the defeat of their enemy. That's a picture of a desire for something more than just their just desserts being received. But you know where these literature and history point us to in a very real world setting? Yours and my life? Uh, beloved, uh, the biggest test to move beyond Schadenfreude in our real lives is in the relationships of greatest familiarity where trust and promises, whether implicit or explicit, or, or vulnerability, is, is part and parcel of the relationship. And where that trust and vulnerability are in play and are greatest, there is also, therefore, the greatest potential for hurt and for harm. You're opening yourself up to someone. They can violate that trust. They can do harm to you. Therefore, you risk the greatest harm when you're in that way. And therefore, in that moment, you feel the greatest temptation to want them only to hurt for what they've done. In that relationship, where harm is greatest, Schadenfreude raises to the top of the list of things to which you and I are tempted. And if I might just use one example, not to put it on a pedestal, and not to suggest that it is the only relationship in which this scenario occurs, but in marriage, where you have made promises in which you have entrusted your very life and fullness and wholeness unto another, in those moments the potential for harm is greatest, what happens? Verse 6 does not explicitly discuss forgiveness. 
But I think the biggest slice of the pie in what verse 6 is teaching has everything to do with forgiveness. And there are few relationships like a marriage in which forgiveness must become a spiritual discipline. The problem is forgiveness is often misunderstood. And in the resource doc that I've got this week about the sermon, there's a wonderful article that I've shared with you before, but I commend it to you again. It's almost 30 years old, but it's aged very well. It's written by a counselor named Dan Allender. And he explains near the beginning of the article how forgiveness is usually and awfully misunderstood. He puts it this way. Forgiveness is too often seen as merely an exercise in releasing bad feelings and ignoring past harm, pretending all is well. That's how we usually think of forgiveness. If I could just get over my anger, I will have forgiven them. Or if I ever have anger in the midst of somebody's doing my harm, then maybe I haven't forgiven them. Or why haven't I forgiven them all in one fell swoop? And in the course of that article, he of course realizes and recognizes and encourages us to realize that forgiveness is a process. And it's more like a spiral. Sometimes we, sometimes we do better than others. But then he offers a definition of what forgiveness is. He says, to forgive another means to cancel a debt in order to provide an opportunity for repentance and restoration of the broken relationship. It's creating a space in which they actually, just like Harry does for Voldemort, gives him an opportunity to do the right thing. That's where forgiveness goes. And therefore, what does it look like in real life? It requires that anybody that might forgive another, forsaking Schadenfreude for the sake of something greater than it, one must ask themselves certain questions. And Allender speaks to that when he says this. What does it mean to give this person a taste of God's character in both strength and mercy? How can I feed him a taste of goodness that will surprise and shame his wickedness? That's the way forgiveness unfolds. That's the way love takes hold in a world and in hearts where it feels awfully natural and awfully right and even righteous to simply want them harmed for what they've done. I'm telling you, this is the hardest passage I could ever imagine, and I will be very frank with you. I've been harmed in my life, but rarely with intent. And I dare say there are many of you in this room, and many of you who are watching can tell me any number of stories in which people have harmed you and have done so with intent, and maybe over long stretches of time, and so I simply do not look at you and go, come on, get together, get it in line. Any of you could tell me stories, and I hope that you might in the days to come. But the question is, how do we get that kind of heart? And the first question might be, do we even want that kind of heart? Because as Allender says in that article, we, we may be so afraid to forgive because we think it's going to make us cold inside and opens us up to the kind of harm that we've already experienced. How do we get that heart that longs for something more than just harm, joy, and somebody's harm? Brothers and sisters, I think this is why we need Palm Sunday. That you and I must sit quietly before Palm Sunday. We have to figure out 
What is Palm Sunday out to communicate to us? It's more than just sort of this dramatic moment. I think Palm Sunday has two things for us that might be an incremental step toward finding this heart. What is it out to convey? You first have to look at Jesus' mode of transportation. He didn't just walk into town. He got on a donkey. And as it says there in the passage, that choice was out to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah had said. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is sending a message without saying a word. It's fulfilling what Zechariah said. God is here. God is in this moment. And God has come to act and move with authority. For Jesus not simply to walk into town, but to ride into town humbly and on a donkey, He is here to say to us, I come with authority. I come as a king. Not the king you think I am, but actually a king greater than you'll ever know. And therefore, his mode of transportation says this to us in the context of this passage. Jesus has the authority to ask anything of us, including a heart that does not rejoice at another's downfall but actually rejoices at their repentance. It's nothing that Jesus doesn't do Himself. Later in Matthew 23, knowing what will befall Him in a mere matter of hours, He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You were not willing He knows what's coming. He knows what that city is going to do to him. And yet he still longs for them to take a different tack. If Jesus does what he calls us to, and if in fact he is Lord and Master, and the servant is not greater than his master, and therefore the servant should expect to do as the master does, the brothers and sisters, and those of you who walk at home, and those of you that are watching, like some sort of entertainment about how the Christians think, here's the deal. He has the right to ask of us this heart. But as impossible as that heart sounds, as impossible as imagining a pill bug jumping from here to the moon, there's a second and final lesson in Palm Sunday that I think helps us move toward that heart. Not only the mode of the transportation, but the direction that Jesus is headed. He's heading into Jerusalem. He's headed into the center of the heart of the beast. He's headed into the hornet's nest, and he plans to shake the hornet's nest. He is not out to elude or evade the voices that will be thrilled at his downfall. No, he steps into that space. He confronts that heart, and he says something to it. And you know what, brothers and sisters? He comes to our hearts that perhaps long to see others and take joy in their downfall. And He confronts us. How does Jesus confront us? 
by placing his joy on something far beyond just our just condemnation. He finds something of greater value than of justice being done to us. And that's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, for the joy set that was before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. One may take joy in justice being done, and surely we are to do justly and long to see justice become manifest in the world. But what keeps us from becoming unjust oppressors of others that we think have unjustly oppressed us is believing that for him, his greatest joy was in seeing forgiveness come forth. He did not rejoice in what would be our just consequence. In fact, he wept before the destiny of that justice. But he placed his joy instead on what would atone, on what would cover, and in that kindness, lead us to repentance. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the one thing, perhaps the only thing, that is not a self-focused reason for trying to check against the inclination to want only harm and downfall done to those who do wrong. It is instead wanting them to, longing for them to finally see some remorse and repent of their way. Beloved, I'll say it this way and I'll close it this way. This impossible heart is only going to be found in an impossible silence before what happened on an impossible day when one who would be king would only become king by letting him be the object of Schadenfreude, by letting himself be destroyed. Lord willing, the extent to which we hold to that and believe that is the extent to which we might let go of our grip on that which feels so natural. Let's pray. Father, I knew full well, even as I say those words, that how this works out in the world, heaven is in the details. How do we think of the harm done to us or the harm done for years? How do we know when justice is done? How do we find a heart that longs for something greater in which there is goodness and righteousness and justice and also peace. Father, we need your help to see how this works in a real world. Surely it worked in the very real world of your Son. But now, Father, by your Spirit, would you help us not to be afraid of silence? Would you help us to see it as an act not mainly for ourselves, but an act of love for you. And in that impossible silence, would your Spirit remind us of what endures, of a kingdom that is still to come, in which all things will be set right, and in that hope, therefore, to release our bloodthirsty screams and demands, and instead seek that which is good for all in love, and nothing more and nothing less. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of his Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Now go in peace. Hope to see you soon.